Good morning, Storyline. Uh, it's good to be together this morning, and I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, my name is Jill McNabney, and I have been a part of Storyline since the very beginning, um, and I'm currently serving on our leadership council. So last Monday, um, Mike asked me if I would help him write this morning's talk. And I love writing talks, I just don't like giving talks. So I was like, yeah, tell me what the topic is, I'd love to help you out. Uh, and then on Wednesday, he called to let me know that he had COVID, and he was probably just gonna need like a little more help writing the talk than he initially thought. Um, he assured me that he would be fine by Sunday, and that I wasn't gonna have to give this talk, like I just needed to help write it. Um, so I think you know where this is going. Uh, so Mike has actually been really sick for the past few days. Um, he's feeling better right now, but uh, he doesn't have a voice and he's still pretty under the weather, and so we're sending prayers and good thoughts his way this morning. Um, so normally, it takes me two to three weeks to plan and research and write a talk. I mean, sometimes a lot longer than that. And this is the first time that I've had only two days. So really, I mean, anything could happen. Uh, so here we go. Um, so today is the first day of Advent, uh, which is the church's official start to the Christmas season. And, you know, the Christmas season means, of course, cheesy Christmas movies. And so I thought we'd kick that off this morning by watching the summary of every Hallmark Christmas movie ever made. Uh, I think they nailed it. Um, so today is not only the start of Advent, it's also the end of our series of talks on the book of John. Uh, and we've been looking at the life of Jesus through the Gospel of John for the past six months, um, which is by far the longest series we've ever done. And, you know, Mike has been very careful to say that we're not teaching the book of John. Like, we haven't gone through it verse by verse, uh, but rather we've been pulling one short passage from each chapter and then creating a gathering around it, uh, hoping to experience together the bigger themes in John's biography of Jesus. And so this morning, we've come to the last chapter, uh, 21. But before we take a look at that, I think it's important for us to do another quick summary this morning of this time um, highlighting some of John's story of Jesus. Because I think this is going to help us to appreciate what Jesus does in this final chapter. So overall, John is trying to show people that Jesus is the Messiah and that eternal life comes not only from believing in Jesus, but also following him. And so right from the start in chapter 1, John says that Jesus is God and he's moved into the neighborhood with us, asking the question, what do you want? In John 2, we see Jesus' first miracle, and it's not really at all what anyone could have guessed. You know, at a wedding, he turns water that's used for religious ceremonial washing into wine for the reception, symbolizing and foreshadowing how he's going to transform the water of religion into the wine of God's grace, joy, acceptance, and celebration. John 3 tells us, for God so loved the good people. No, the godly, the upright, the rule followers, the religious. No to all of those. For God so loved the world, Jesus said that he came to give his life so we could have life. We need only to accept it. And so right from the beginning, this is God showing up in a way that no one could have anticipated and no one was looking for. You know, John is making it clear that Jesus is God, but not at all like the God most of us envision 
or have had presented to us by the religious authorities. And then, in John 4, we meet a woman at a well, a woman who's in the wrong place at the wrong time, who's the wrong race and the wrong religion. And in some ways, the encounter she has with Jesus summarizes chapters 1 through 4. Would you give me a drink? Did you hear me? That's bad, huh? What? You, a Jew, ask her to drink from me a Samaritan and a woman. I'm sorry. I should have said please. Aren't I unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Would. Except that you have nothing to draw water with, and this is a deep well. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Wouldn't that be nice? The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. First, go and call your husband and come back. I will show you both. I don't have a husband. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. <laughs> oh, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah. Exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here that it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, it won't matter where you're from or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you? Until the Messiah comes and explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me, I don't trust in anyone. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity who was excited to be married. He wasn't a good man. He hurt you. 
and it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know, but not by the Messiah. And you know these things because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon, just the heart. <laughs> you promise. I promise. So this is Jesus showing up in unexpected places with unexpected people with an unexpected message and invitation. It was about here that we started to notice this theme of Jesus. He begins with belonging. You know, he was always inviting and including people, trying to show them that God is on their side. So far, John is definitely a story of God loving us, coming to us, and being for us. John 5 is where we start to see the first rumblings against Jesus from the religious crowd. So chapters 5 through 9 are full of Jesus performing miracles and healing people, only to be met with opposition from the religious elite. Uh, in chapter 5, Jesus heals the paralytic at the pool, only to be questioned about healing on the Sabbath. In John 6, he feeds the 5,000, only to have the religious rulers plot to kill him for calling himself the Son of God. In chapter 8, Jesus refuses to condemn a woman caught in adultery, literally drawing a line in the sand, placing himself on her side, uh, her side of the line, in opposition to the religious leaders. In John 9, he heals a blind man, only to be questioned and judged by the Pharisees. Jesus' message that God is on everyone's side didn't sit well with those who thought God was only on their side and they got to control who was in and who was out. So we see in these chapters a powerful opposition growing against Jesus. In John 10, Jesus uses the parable of sheep and their shepherd. Um, so sheep are inherently clueless animals who can't live alone and can't live without guidance from a shepherd. And Jesus says we are like sheep, wandering through life, aimless and alone, unless we choose to follow him. In some more foreshadowing, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Now, I loved the video that Mike used with this talk where, you know, to this day, shepherds will use their bodies 
as the gates to sheep pens, so anything harmful or dangerous literally has to go through them to get to the sheep. John 11 included the death and resurrection of his friend Lazarus, and this is actually what launches Jesus into fame. You know, word about him is now spreading, and people are getting really excited. So much so that in John 12, he's welcomed into Jerusalem like a hero. Throngs of people are cheering, are cheering for him. And then Jesus takes his 12 closest followers to a small room where the next five chapters unfold. At this point, his followers are so excited. I mean, Jesus is famous and popular, and they hope soon to be very powerful. But Jesus knows what's coming. Um, I played softball at Lakeshore High School back in the late 90s, um, which is when we really started to get good. Uh, the first state championship that we ever won was when I was in eighth grade. And then we played in the state championship game three of my four years in high school. And so, you know, playing in this program, you just get used to winning a lot. Um, and oftentimes, girls make the mistake of thinking that it's going to be easy to just keep winning. And so my sophomore year, uh, we lost a game on a Friday night to a team that we should have easily beaten. And when we showed up for our tournament the next morning, Coach Doc proceeded to rip up the state championship banners from the years before. And he pulled up JV players to start over all of the seniors uh, in our first game that day. You know, he always had a way of bringing us back to reality, to prepare us for a future that was going to be much more difficult than the past. And Jesus is kind of doing the same thing here with his followers who are way overexcited about how well this is going and how easy it's going to be to follow him. And so in these chapters, we see Jesus predicting and preparing for his death and trying to prepare his followers for the same. You know, in this little room, he washes the disciples' feet, he comforts them, they eat one last meal together, and he promises the Holy Spirit. He compares their relationship to the vine and branches of a grape vineyard where, as branches, our role isn't to produce good fruit, but only to allow the goodness of God to flow through us to produce fruit. Jesus prays for himself, and he prays for all of the people throughout time who will trust in God's grace through his gospel. So then in chapter 18, the story takes another really dramatic turn. Uh, Jesus leaves this room, and the world starts to cave in. In John 18, Jesus is arrested and condemned to die. It's also here that Peter, who at one point, you know, Jesus claims will be the rock upon which his church will be built, denies even knowing Jesus three different times. Then in John 19, Jesus is crucified on a hill just outside Jerusalem between two thieves. The crucifixion is a huge topic, and it may be the most written about event in human history. And we didn't even pretend to try to speak to all of the questions that come with this subject, other than to say, the cross is a demonstration of how much God loves us, how much we need him, and how dangerous life is without him. And so we left that talk with an open question. What more could God have done? And then last week we were in John 20, which is all about Easter, you know, the resurrection of Jesus and its immediate aftermath. And here we see how the first church ever dealt with the first skeptic ever, Thomas. And they did so with patience, compassion, inclusion, and love. And Mike just kept repeating this one phrase from that chapter over and over again. 
a week after doubting, denying, and disbelieving, Thomas was with them. And what a challenge for the future of the church and for us as a church. Is Thomas with us? I mean, do we love and invite and include everyone the way the first church did? So that brings us to where we are this morning, the end of the book of John, chapter 21. So after his resurrection, Jesus had appeared to the disciples on several occasions, and one of those times went like this. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So let's put ourselves in this situation for just a second. Have you ever received some free advice from someone who you know knows way less than you do about the situation? I mean, I'm a teacher, and there are days when, let's just say the lesson I've planned doesn't go exactly the way I had envisioned it. And now that's frustrating enough, but what's even more infuriating is when someone who's not a teacher tries to make like helpful suggestions as to what went wrong. Um, so for example, the college board sets the curriculum for what has to be taught in all advanced placement classes. So basically, you have to teach what they say so that kids uh, can pass the test that the college board writes. Um, and there is this AP biology lab that the college board requires you to do, and it never works. I mean, there are like numerous discussion boards among AP bio teachers just dedicated to how horrible this lab is. Super nerdy, I know. But every year I do it because it's required, and it never works, and without fail, every year, there will be some non-science teacher who will ask me questions like, well, did you give them the right solutions? Or did they measure stuff correctly? Or are you sure you used the right ingredients? I mean, I know they're trying to be helpful, but honestly, it's a little insulting. And that is what is going on here. Peter is a professional fisherman who has been out fishing all night and has literally nothing to show for it. And some random guy tells him he knows a better way for him to fish. That's kind of insulting. But for some reason, you know, they actually do it. They throw their nets to the other side of the boat, and it goes on to say, when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple Jesus loved, that's just John referring to himself, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say this, he wrapped his outer garment around him and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. So there is so much packed into this one chapter, and every time I read it, I feel like I get something new out of it. But something that always sticks with me is that Jesus could have filled their nets on either side of the boat. So why didn't he? I mean, why didn't he just bless Peter's fishing trip with tons of fish? Like, why make him move the net to the other side of the boat? And I wonder if it was to show Peter and us that even though God is already on our side, we still have to put ourselves on his side. 
I mean, this goes all the way back to John 3 of accepting Jesus' invitation for eternal life. And it's our first takeaway from this chapter. Moving his nets to the other side of the boat is Peter's way of saying to Jesus, my nets or my desires or my life are now on your side. One of the things that I love about this story is that Jesus doesn't ask Peter to change his profession or his passion. He just asks him to pursue them in a different way for a different, better, deeper purpose in a way that will constantly bring him back to Jesus, giving him life, and setting him free. Cause you're on to me 
So John 21 goes on to say, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Now, if we look at that conversation in the original Greek, Peter and Jesus don't use the same word for love. And this gets a little confusing for us because we only have one word for love. So we love our mom, and we love ice cream, and we love Netflix. But in ancient Greek, the language that the New Testament was written in, uh, there are three distinct words for love, which is actually pretty amazing considering the fact that the, ancient, the entire ancient Greek language had just over 6,000 words, three of which mean love, uh, while the English language has over a million words with just one word for love. So... Jesus uses the Greek word agape, which carries the full meaning of God's love. It's selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. Peter responds with the word phileo, which means friendship or brotherly love. Jesus asks, do you love me unconditionally? And Peter answers, yeah, you know I'm your friend. I mean, that is called ducking the question. Peter sounds like a politician here. And, you know, I sort of get where Peter is coming from. He's just denied Jesus three times during the worst moment of Jesus' life, which most likely ends up becoming the worst moment of Peter's life. And so when Jesus asks for unconditional love, Peter doesn't feel like he has it to give. And so Jesus asks the question a second time, again using the word agape, unconditional love. And Peter gives the same answer a second time. Yeah, you know I'm your friend. And then Jesus asks the question a third time. But this time, Jesus uses the word that Peter used. He says, Simon, son of John, are you my friend? And the Bible says that Peter gets really upset by this question. And I wonder if it's not because of the number of times Jesus asks, but because of the way he phrases it. Jesus knew that Peter didn't have unconditional love to give in that place, at that time, in that particular moment. And so instead, he asked for friendship. I mean, here, once again, Jesus started where Peter was at. It's another surprising and unexpected thing Jesus shows us about the character of God. You know, Jesus loves Peter unconditionally, but he doesn't insist that Peter love him back in the same way. So while our first takeaway from this chapter is that God is on our side, but we have to put ourselves on his, our second takeaway is Jesus meets us right where we are. He doesn't demand that we clean up our act or get our lives together or be perfect in any way. And you know, we see this all throughout the book of John in chapter 4 with the woman at the well, chapter 11 with Mary through her tears at her brother's tomb, chapter 20 with Thomas and his doubt. I mean, the list here is long. And one of the things that I love about storyline is that we truly believe transformation happens in this order. Belong, believe, become. And the reason we believe this 
is because it's what Jesus modeled. You know, all throughout the Bible, Jesus invites people to belong and shows them unconditional love no matter what they believe. And through that belonging, we see them transformed into who God made them to become. Jesus meets us where we are, but doesn't leave us there. After each time Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes. Jesus then says, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, and feed my sheep. As a side note, we're coming back full circle here to the chapter 10 sheep analogy. Um, but at this point in the story, Jesus has died, risen from the dead, and appeared to the disciples three times. Jesus knows this is the last time that he'll see Peter, like he's leaving for good. And so in this moment, it is so important to see what he's doing. Jesus is giving us each other, and he's giving us a mission together. You know, we think the church exists and it has this mission to like seek and save the lost, to love the world right, you know, to see God's grace reign everywhere and reign in everyone. But what if we have it backwards? The church doesn't have a mission as much as the mission of God requires a church, a, com a community committed to living in and living out the grace of God. I mean, that's why at Storyline we often say the best church for you is is, isn't the church for you. So our third and final takeaway from John 21 is the mission is each other. Theologian and priest Henry Nouwen summed up the mission of God's grace beautifully in his essay titled The Ministry of Presence. He said, more and more the desire grows in me simply to walk around, greet people, enter their homes, sit on their doorsteps, play ball, throw water, and be known as someone who wants to live with them. It's a privilege to have the time to practice this simple ministry of presence. Still, it's not as simple as it seems. My own desire to be useful, to do something significant, or to be part of some impressive project is so strong that soon my time is taken up by meetings, conferences, study groups, and workshops that prevent me from walking the streets. It's difficult not to have plans, not to organize people around an urgent cause, and not to feel that you're working directly for social progress. But I wonder more and more if the first thing shouldn't be to know people by name, to eat and drink with them, to listen to their stories and tell your own, and to let them know with words, handshakes, and hugs that you do not simply like them, but truly love them. <laughs> the mission is each other. The first time Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He actually asked, do you truly love me more than these? And throughout history, you know, people have wondered, like, what was Jesus referring to with that question? Was it a comparison of Peter's love for Jesus as opposed to how much the other disciples love Jesus? Like, do you love me more than they love me? Um, was it referring to whether Peter loved Jesus more or Peter loved the other disciples more? Like, who are you better friends with, them or me? Um, there are lots of commentaries on what Jesus meant by more than these, but I think the best answer to that question was that Jesus was really asking, do you love me more than these 153 fish? Fishing was Peter's profession, passion, and purpose in life. Peter loved to catch fish, and that can be a really beautiful thing when your profession, passion, and purpose all align but it can also be a really destructive thing when done all alone, by yourself, for yourself. 
Jesus is giving Peter and all of us a mission together that begins to take hold in us when we see where our love starts to lead us. I mean, will it be towards the 153 million fish in the world today? You know, all the things that could distract us but will ultimately deflate or defeat us? Or will we love God and all of his, his children more than these fish? It's Jesus asking, do I have your heart completely?
So as much as we love to make fun of Hallmark Christmas movies, I think there might be something to them. I mean, there's a reason they bring in almost $150 million per year. Uh, the premise of every Hallmark movie ever made is an unlikely connection between two people. And we are drawn to that because it's the mission Jesus gave us. As the Christmas season begins, you know, it's a time of year when we're reminded of God moving into the neighborhood, God living among us, showing us what he's like, and giving us a mission of meaning together, which ties into so many of the themes we saw in the Gospel of John. But as much as anything, the birth of Christ is a reminder that God is always up to something new and always including us in on it and wanting us to include others. Which means, in a way, we're always at the beginning of what's left of our story. And maybe that's why John ends his book talking about everything God has done and will do on earth like this. I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time and this place and the opportunity to be together this morning. We want to lift up Mike to you and ask that you'd help him feel better and get him on the road to recovery. Um, as we leave here this morning, help us to be mindful of the people in our lives who are longing to belong. Show us ways to participate in your mission with each other and for each other. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks for coming. Have a good day.